Roderick Jefferson is the founder and CEO of Roderick Jefferson and Associates. He's been leading sales training and sales enablement for companies since the mid 2000s and has operated at scale several times with companies like PayPal, Salesforce, Oracle, and Marketo. In addition to helping companies with sales enablement, Roderick is one of the founding members of the Sales Enablement Society and is an advisory board member for two companies in sales acceleration space, Autobound.ai and Celeration. In this episode, we learn about all things sales enablement, but most importantly, how to set it up correctly. Okay, Roderick, thank you so much for being on the show. I am uh, beyond <laughs> impressed by your background. I was already telling you that the logo count people, in the intro that I'm going to add to this show, it's not going to do justice to, to Roderick's background, but here are some household names that some of you might be familiar with AT&T, NetApp, PayPal, Salesforce, Oracle, Marketo. These are all just some of the companies that uh, uh, Roderick has helped run sales enablement, sales training for, uh, in some cases on a global basis for or companies like Oracle. So this is an honor to have you here. And we're going to talk about sales enablement here, but I want to talk about the transition or just the history here, if we can. Um, I know you're well known for defining or, you know, sort of creating the idea of sales enablement. So talk to me about what you've seen in the evolution from good old sales training uh, 2000s to this onset in 2010 and forward around sales enablement. Is it, what is the difference if you can, can you kind of define it and give us some differences? Yeah. I mean, here's this. Th thanks first of all for of the, the intro. I'm absolutely honored. I've been blessed to be at some of the most incredible companies on the planet. And to your point, one day from a state stock perspective, I'm hoping they take off <laughs> at one point, right? Um, but in regards to how I got here today, I actually started as BDR and um, carried a bag at AT&T. So I got a lot of love for my BDRs and SDRs because right. I know how difficult that is. Matter of fact, when I wrote my book, I actually dedicated an entire chapter to how you enable BDRs and SDRs differently then you do the rest of the go-to-market um, paradigm. So, and for those that are listening, since we since we're dropping the book, uh, the blueprint to sales enablement excellence, sales enablement 3.0 by Roger Jefferson. Cop it on Amazon now. Uh, my copy arrives tomorrow, so I'm totally transparent here. I haven't read it in advance, but I've known Roderick for a long time, and I know he's Mister Sales Enablement. So continue on. Thanks, man. So I did the, the BDR thing, did well, did my, you know, 18 months to, to 24 months like we typically do, got promoted to AE, did really well, led the uh, branch and led the, the region there in sales for a bit, and then got, as we do, got promoted to sales leader. Caught a chink in the armor, though. I turned it down. Ah, interesting. And actually said no thanks. Um, cool I realized that I love the process of selling more than I did taking down big deals. So as any good salesperson, I talked myself into my next role, which was a sales trainer right away. And I said to my sales leader, what if I could do thing, two things? One, what if I could accelerate the, the speed to onboarding and get people going with kind of some of the basic templates that I had created that helped me get there? And secondly, what if I gave you the best gift and problem you could ever have as a sales leader? I have more people eligible for president's club, then I have budget. He said, then you got a new job. So I stepped into sales training and loved it. And then to fast forward, I was at NetApp and I was talking to my sales leader and typical conversation. You know what? Our people don't handle disco and qual well, throw training at it. They can't handle objections well, 
throw training at it. We've got more managers and, and not enough leaders. Let me guess, throw training at it. <laughs> and I swear a light bulb hit me and it looked over at him. And I said, you know, actually, I think it's not training we need. Because I think you train animals and you enable people. Are. Mm. And that's where things changed. And he said, so talk to me, what's this enablement thing? And so I started explaining, it's really more about a marathon than it is a sprint, right? It starts all the way back at talent assessment and acquisition of getting the right, we know the ICP, but getting the right IEP, which is the ideal employee profile, the seller profile based upon where the maturation of a company is. The next piece was all about onboarding. And I mean, consistent onboarding that is role specific because we both know, man, yeah. when I'm talking to a BDR, it's not the same conversation as an AE as I am talking to a solution consultant or, or a sales engineer, or if I'm talking to a CSM or client services. The next piece was how do we continually sharpen the sword and increase business acumen, right? For the legacy folks, everybody wants to talk about the newbies and the, and the new toys. What about the legacy folks? One, how do we get them included in the process? And second, how do we constantly sharpen their sword? The next piece that constitutes enablement is coaching and reinforcement for leaders. And they get mm -hmm. left out a lot, as a you lot. know, as one, right? We're always focused on the, the individual contributors. Mm -hmm. But I think that there should be two different slots and, and angles of leadership coaching. One, net new. I've just been moved into a leadership position for the first time. I've only held a, a position where I had to oversee my, my patch. I never ran a team meeting, hired, fired, had to actually coach, coach performance. and push yeah. folks forward, right? Or even be responsible for anything other than me cracking my nut, right? The next piece was measurement. And we're going to, I really want to get into this later. And I, because too many times and too often enablement has been responsible for putting out what I call smiley sheets and butts and seats, right? <laughs> 5,000 people and we're at 4.7. Great. That and seven bucks will get you a latte. That means nothing unless it's things that I tie told back you guys to this was going to be five. Uh -huh. Right. And the final piece is succession planning. And we both know how important that is. It's how do we prepare people for that next level? And like me, what if they don't want to be a sales leader? What if they want to go into enablement or product marketing or product management or engineering or HR? I feel like we should be preparing these sellers, especially because what are they doing? They're probably the best mouthpiece for the company. Right. So if they went to marketing, imagine if you could take a sales mind and put them over there and then become, as I call the translates, translators of dialects and languages, and they could actually have that messaging and positioning, have a sales slant or a sales voice to it. There to me is the definition and then of true enablement. Wow. Well, it's it's good to hear a highly comprehensive viewpoint on this. Often, I think when I talk to people about sales enablement, it comes back to content creation, content management. And that and is absolutely yeah. Well, they, that, what I'm saying is it's an oversimplified yeah. uh definition a lot of times where it is far more encompassing than just throwing, sales, throwing uh, training at it, like you said. Absolutely. So, we are not the fixers of broken things and broken people. If we do it right and you weave enablement into the fabric of your company, we literally are a recruiting tool. We're a retention tool as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, if more people are being promoted, like you mentioned earlier, as, a, as an outcome of it, then yeah, 
naturally more retention. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, I'm talking HR and recruiters are some of my best friends because they're saying, what can we go and talk to a candidate about besides the norm that everybody else is talking about? Mm-hmm. I say, here's the ongoing look and feel of enablement and what you're going to get. Because I've been in positions where I'm in a company and I go through boot camp, I go through onboarding. I don't see anybody for 18 months. Now, all of a sudden, I'm supposed to sink or swim. No, if you talk about that entire end-to-end strategy where I say it's now a marathon versus just a sprint and it's an ongoing thing, you got to pace yourself, right? Just like with a marathon, you don't come out just guns blazing. No, what you do is you gradually start to work up, then you maintain maintain a consistent pace. And then at some point you're going to sprint at other times, you're going to kind of coast through. It's exactly what we do. What's it like running sales enablement at a, you know, what's the difference, if you will, between running sales enablement at a big company like Oracle or, you know, Marketo, uh, Salesforce versus something smaller, uh, like a startup organization? Talk to me about what that sales enablement role kind of looks like in the, yeah, what's the night night and day? day. Um, I would say it's span of control and it's also level of impact. I want to say something really quickly, though, because everyone gets enamored by the logos. Right. I came from small companies. I've been through 14 M&A activities. So either being acquired or acquired. Right. So when you when you look at it, I came from a little tiny company called Jigsaw. Right. Jigsaw. It got acquired. It it became Salesforce. Yeah. All right. And in Oracle, we started out as Oracle Marketing Cloud. When I walked in, my team was me and four walls. Right. That grew. So I haven't always been up there, but to answer your questions, it's it's really about the span of control and impact. When you're a smaller company, you're wearing, it's like anything else, you're wearing a lot more hats, but you're also sitting down at the big table with potentially the founder, the head of sales, the CHR, the uh, CMO, you're sitting down with the head of engineering. So it's literally, it's an MBA. on enablement when it's a small company. But then it's also a lot more education required of what enablement is and what enablement is not. When you get to a larger company, it's really then about understanding how you can best resource the needs that are required by the company. And more than anything, making sure that you don't overpromise so that you don't wound up drowning. So I always say never more than five, what I call big rocks, right? That you can do in a given either quarter or half year. Because mm-hmm. anything beyond that, you're setting you're yourself about up. talking enablement right? initiatives, right? Absolutely. No, mm-hmm. I mean company initiatives. And that's the mm-hmm. other piece. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't believe in enablement initiatives. If it If enablement is not one of the top three initiatives of the company, it will die on the vine. Right, right. If the CEO, the CR, CRO, and or whether it be you've got a CSO or you've got a VP of sales, if enablement is not one of their top three priorities, it's useless because I need them to drive the adoption, the execution, and most importantly, the positive modeling of all the processes, programs, and platforms that my team's going to put in place. Hmm. Well, I want to come back to the function and the concepts of sales enablement and talk a little bit about the other side of this. And that's you jumping off and starting your own uh, consulting sales enablement uh, business. And, you know, we do call this the sales consultant podcast and understanding that journey is core to our, our show. So 
you have Roger Jefferson and Associates. You're also an advisory uh, board member uh, on a number of companies. But can you talk about the inflection point of taking all this experience and know-how that you've culminated through the years and parlaying that into a professional service of your own? Talk about that entrepreneurial journey and that, that transition, if you can. Absolutely. I look at kind of my first 20 plus years as the training ground, if you will, for me becoming a consultant. And I think the thing that I bring is I am a practitioner's practitioner. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is you, you need onboarding. You're growing in a hyper growth company. Guess what? I've been through that seven times. You're in a company where you are making a transition from being a product led company into really having a conversational sell. Mm-hmm. Done that five or six times, right? You are now trying to figure out how you're going to tie and accelerate speed to revenue increase productivity per head, put the right metrics and and measurements in place, and then tie the front and the back of the house together of sales and that back end of customer success or client services, done that five or six times. So now when you say, do I go get someone who has been there and done that and can show it by practical application, or do I try to wander around, right? Which is why with Roderick Jefferson Associates, I chose intentionally to sell my services as a fractional or an interim enablement leader. I'm someone that can come in and help set up the programs, the processes, put all the plumbing, if you will, in place. I can even help you write the JDs, the job descriptions, and also help you hire. I've done this four or five times, right? And then on the back end, it's how do you tie together marketing, product marketing, sales, engineering, HR, and enablement so that you now have clear and concise communications, mm-hmm. right? Everyone understands what collaboration means and they have ownership <laughs> and accountability, which is important. And then finally, you think about it as an orchestra, right? You got to have that one person up that taps mm-hmm. the stand that turns all that noise and chaos into a beautiful sheet of music. That's what the fractional enablement leader does. Why, did, why didn't you start your own business though? Why, why didn't you just, I mean, you were on, you have a progressive career, worked for some phenomenal companies. You could stay full-time with an organization. And I'm sure you probably, you know, it's been a long journey. You started this in 2008. It looks like probably started moonlighting before that even, but why create a business out of it as opposed to sticking on the career track? Well, because I realized that there's an enormous need out there, especially in those small to high growth companies where they're growing like crazy. They're getting the the funding. They're now tied to a solid PE or VC firm. But when you really think about companies, especially here in Silicon Valley, founders are generally, and I'm going to generalize for a second, are generally engineers or they're product people. They're not salespeople. So where I feel that void is connecting the sales, the marketing, and the engineering together so we create consistency, scalability, and help them to accelerate and optimize revenue. Because mm-hmm. that's a foreign word to them sometimes, right? right? They know how to pull it together. They've got the product piece. They've got the MVP ready to go. How do you sell it? Mm, that's a good question. So what I bring is that cog that all the other pieces spoke off of. Very good. What advice would you give to someone who had similar ambitions to be an independent 
sales enablement consultant? Um, first and foremost, make sure that you have seen what I call four seasons. You've seen summer, winter, spring, and fall as an enablement practitioner. That you, it helps that you've seen it at from small to mid-sized to large companies because you now have, as I call it the book, you've got a blueprint of how to get from being a startup to being a mid-sized company to being an enterprise company, right? Now, tactically, if you don't have six months in, uh, of finances in the bank, don't do it hmm. because it's going to take you time. This is not something where suddenly you're just a butterfly and you're ready to go. No, no, you got to crack out of that cocoon and take off. Filler stage first. <laughs> it's because more like pushing out the nest out. and watch them fall. <laughs> exactly. You got to figure out who's your ideal client profile, right? Okay. And how do I get to them? How do I get my messaging and positioning together? How do I get out and sometimes trip and fall on their dollar when you're first starting out, right? But then you got to you start to develop those templates and those tools, and now you know how to customize these pieces. Um. And I'll say it's tough being a solopreneur when you first start, because especially coming from corporate, you're used to having a team around you, right? right? I needed a new PowerPoint deck. I can go to product marketing. They'll pretty it up for me. Now you are product marketing, yeah, right? Everything's DIY. Everything's yours. <laughs> the, the laptop goes down. I could just call IT. Nope, not anymore. You're IT now. Yep. And so make sure that you focus on how to run your business because it's impossible to walk to focus on both being working on the business and trying to work in the business at the right, same time. Right. Well, how do you deal with the messaging piece of it, right? Trying to articulate who we are, what we do, the value we bring. We you've been very clear so far around your background, your expertise. So it sounds like you've put a lot of thought in that, but as an independent consultant myself, this is the kind of stuff that keeps us up at night. How am I, you know, portraying my business, my services? How am I communicating value, right? The stuff that we talk to our clients yeah, about effectively, absolutely. right? But it's a different when it's a professional service. It's you. It's not someone's software or, or whatever, mm -hmm. right? So I actually, just as a quick sidebar, I had Jeff Bajorka on recently, and he talked about all this a lot where, you know, he'd been in business as a sales trainer for seven years. And at one point, just recently, he had to take a step back and really examine his his messaging and came to a point where he re-clarified stuff. So I'm just curious in, in your realm, you've been doing this for a while as an independent uh, consultant as well. Like, how do you grapple with that message and how do you market yourself? <laughs> um, first and foremost, never shoot for perfection because it's ah, not going to happen. I love that. You'll drive yes. yourself nuts. Realize like everything else, it's a process. It's going to be iterative. What looks fantastic right now won't later. I look back sometimes on like my first couple of gigs that I got as a consultant and I look back at my deck and I go, why do people pay, trust me to pay for anything? Because it That's was the real it talk was, right there. Yep. I won't say it was garbage, but it was garbage. <laughs> it, was, it was early revs, early revs. Yeah. And so, and the other thing is the key piece is be prepared to spend money for things that you're not good at. Right. And I, like I, I wasn't, when I began, I wasn't very good at PowerPoint. I went and found a company that I can, they call 24slides.com. 
I can send this off and give them a concept. Now that I have my branding together, I've got my style guide and all that, right? That's the other piece. Focus on your business stuff up first, right? Because they're going to say, hey, what are your company colors? I'm like, I'm blue and orange. Is that light blue? Is that navy blue? Is that sky blue? So the marketing stuff, your go-to-market. Your go-to-market stuff is far more important than what you're selling. You know why? You know what you sell and how to sell it. You don't know how to message and position it. So make sure you get all of your stuff together before you even go and start talking to people about, hey, I'm consulting and I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. Because they're going to say, can you show me something? All right, fine. Here's my website. I'm working on that. I'm going to get back to you on that. (laughs) Can you shoot me a one-pager? Working on that. Working on that. Um, How about this? Can you just send me an overview day? Mm. And then three days later, you finally get done like stewing and brainstorming. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So so don't let analysis analysis paralysis hold you back. Great advice. Practice up front. It's like anything else, right? I I was an athlete way back when, long time ago. Long, 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 long time ago. (laughs) Right? But... I realized early as either an athlete or when I was coaching, you don't win championships in games. You win them in practice. By the time you get to the mm. pra- to the game, it's muscle memory. The same thing as a consultant. You start working on, on your messaging and positioning. What's our tagline? What do we bring? What's our value? Key differentiation, competitive advantage, business value. And you just start working through it and start talking to people that are not salespeople. Because it makes you start explaining things in just basic everyday language. Mm -hmm. For me, I had to get out of enable leads, I'll call it conversation, right? And just talk regular everyday conversation. I always believed that if I could go and explain to my parents or explain to my kids what I do and they get it, then I'm ready to go out and be a consultant. Very good. Uh, Well, that actually segues i wanted to ask you getting back to sales enablement because mm-hmm. it ties into this it's that whole like prep how much time should you spend prepping how much focus should we allocate towards preparing our salespeople versus the real-time area of enabling sellers right so if i have a team of sdrs or aes and you know, I, I'm a sales enablement person. Mm-hmm. Should I concentrate my time mostly on the sort of pre-apex moment enablement, meaning the the the, the content, the the delivery, all the stuff that kind of gets the person ready for the apex moment, the practice that you mentioned? But what if using you know sports as another analogy is if in real time like quarterbacks do with the mic and their coach on the sidelines right Right. so they have some real time as an enablement person you split it down the middle are you are are we at a point now with ai and artificial intelligence are we at a point now where we can start moving the more of our focus towards enabling real-time enablement so that in these dynamic situations, depending on what's being said, the context that's created in that scenario, we can mm-hmm. provide the just-in-time enablement. Or do you think we're still at a point where 80%, the majority of our focus, if not all of it for most companies, is on that get them ready for that moment? Does that make sense? I don't think we're there yet. Okay. Uh, I think we've got a ways to go. I, I always approach um, enablement the same way I did when I was selling. I needed three X in my funnel right? At all times. Mm -hmm. And so I go, I'm probably going to have to put 
50 to 75% more in prep. Because when, again, muscle memory, if I've done it enough times, when I get there, it now flows fluidly. And it also gives me an opportunity to work on the, what's the right story for this piece? What's the right anecdote for that piece? How do I get this across? And here's the important part. As I am preparing, I'm already thinking about reinforcement on the back end. Because if I don't, then it's just a one-time shot and it's training. But don't get me wrong, the the just-in-time piece is critical as well, right? And so where AI is helping is it gives you a framework. I heard something yesterday that for the first time that there is a new title that has started and it's called um, Prompt Operators. What's a prompt operator? It's someone that knows exactly what to ask AI to get the outcome that's going to trim down their preparation time. A prompt operator. We've gotten to that point now. Now, the so thing if I'm I on a, about- well, let's let's play this out. If I'm a, I have, I support five account executives. I'm in revenue operations, and I'm going to hire a prompt operator associate. That, and I'm just spitballing here. <laughs> My AEs are in these situations, and somehow these prompt operators are getting these cues, these triggers, and they're bouncing it off of some AI platform. It doesn't need to be Chat GPT, whatever whatever the is, yeah. flavor of the year is. Uh, Right. Is, is that what you're saying? And then we're getting. Yeah, yeah, I'm saying that that we've gotten to that point. But here here's the thing. The tool is only as good as you know how to make it operate. Right. Right. right, right. So then when I look at something like there's a little company called um, autobound.ai and I, I sit on their board and I join the board for a simple reason. Everybody in the company are sales folks. They were all previous AEs or BDR. And also different from other, and it's not a, hey, go buy this. It's more of the reason I believe in them is they are a tool that really pulls not just content like ChatGPT does, but they pull from commonality. It could be that you went to the same school or you've got um, you know some interests that are the same or you were just in the news or you just got promoted. All of that pulls together. In a matter of less than 30 seconds, you've got an outbound email. Now you can put an entire cadence together, but just like every other AI tool, you now have an opportunity to in, interject, or excuse me, inject your own experience, your anecdotes, your quote, right, et cetera. Right, right, right. So to ask your to ask your to answer your question, Normal. yeah, it's still twice as much uh, on prep as I am. Uh, on the actual delivery piece. The real time. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm getting a wider span of content that I can now add my own ca- context to. Exactly. Right. And Serving it up based on this lead, this opportunity at this stage. And here's, absolutely. yeah. Because let's think about the average age in experience of a BDR. It's usually pretty low. Right. Yep. So what if I could give you these are the trick I could give it. These are the triggers. Throw me out. And now you can go, OK, now yeah. I can mix and match and I can move. You're things superhuman around. at this point, And that's what we're talking about. I right? look You're at, a cyborg at this point. Yeah. Yeah. You become an SDR cyborg. Absolutely. Okay. I look at AI this way. It is no it is another tool no different than Word, PowerPoint or Excel. 
is a tool that allows me to be able to convey and communicate my thoughts and my experience. But what it does is it gives me some additional prompts and some additional content to be able to add into that. It's just like, we'll write something. And what's the first thing you do before you send it off? You go into Word and you spell check, it, right? <laughs> Am I right? Yes. It gives <laughs> well, me all I of should this probably do that more often, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it gives you all of this information, right? But you still got to go back and spell check it. You still have to go back and-, and So there's a quality it. assurance component of it uh, that you're saying, where there's still that final check before it goes out the door. There it yeah, is. Yeah, this measures up. It's, it's send. And I love that because where I go in my mind, you mentioned sequences and different things is, is exactly that. The email writing piece of it is, is crucial. That's a big topic that we're, we're But it's the about. hardest part for most people, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? It, it's to sit down and, and, and. Well, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of different areas. I think there's like prioritization of the right yeah. lead at the right time based Absolutely. on, you know, connect rates and stuff. It's like serving up leads when, uh, and that some of this exists already, but it's the democratization. Am I even saying that right? Democratization of AI. It's going to be more affordable. Yeah, no. <laughs> Pop that up, didn't I? Yeah. Anyways, my my point is that I feel like we're we're heading in that direction. It sounds like uh, we're seeing far more AI category adoption, and it's going to be more affordable. There's going to be new AI development platforms that will start emerging, and you know, it's, it's a wait and see. None of us really have a crystal ball, but I think we're all kind of toying with those predictions. And I would imagine that if I'm a sales enablement professional, um, I'm not. I, I focus in another area, but if I was. I would be looking at, okay, what is the real-time experience that I can really get these sellers up to par uh, with and help them be these sort of cyborg reps, if you will? I I don't know if that's probably a bad example. I think that from an enablement perspective, the way I view it is, is, excuse me, AI is actually going to give me more time to spend with humans. Because if it's going to speed up my processes... If it's going to speed up on the back end, my computations, let's say all of my workshops and, and all of those things that I have to do, all of my my feedback survey and all that, if I can those just throw it in slides, for it me, just spits it out for you now. Yeah. You know what it does now? It yeah. gives me a chance to go sit on more calls, to go on on more calls with people, to do Spend more, more time with your family. I mean, actual it's, it's, coaching, yeah. right. right? And that's the other thing. Good point. Good point. It, it opens up an opportunity for me to have, to teach people how to have conversations instead of giving demonstrations, right? It gives me a chance to say, you know what? I'm going to come in with you, Derek. I'm going to sit down with you and your team and we're going to do a objection handling workshop today. Why? Because I've got that time to do it because all the other things are happening in the back end. Or, hey, I've realized that I sat on a number of calls and I've heard our people actually messaging position on the front end of disco and qual seven different ways as to as simple as what do we do and what's our value to me it says we should probably get together and pull people together whether it be virtually or back together either way and give them an opportunity to practice or put in place an accreditation or a certification to validate that everybody can message in position on the same page why because it's going to open up more time for me to be able to do that 
spent it sounds like an important kpi for sales enablement when you say opening up more time to do that we're talking about seller productivity at, at this point right so can you just off the top of your head what are the core or the most important kpis for a sales enablement team person like how would you measure its efficacy um first i would say that it has to be conveyed and articulated in the words of that particular um, internal customer. I don't call them stakeholders, but internal customer, right? And what I mean by that is if I'm talking to, before I say that, I think there are two types of metrics. One is metrics that enablement influences and impacts. The other is things that we own. And, and I'll say this for my enablement people. If you are out there saying that you drive revenue, stop it. Unless you carry a bag, you do not drive revenue. We impact and we influence it. How do we have, how do we do that? When I'm talking to a sales leader, I'm talking to things about um, where we can impact and influence. Things like average deal size, deal velocity, new pipeline created, quota attainment percentage, both quarter and annual, time to revenue. And I don't mean time to first close. I'm talking about time to first and second close. That first one could have been a bluebird. It could have been a whale that somebody else worked on, yeah. mm -hmm. right? So now that second one really shows me your moxie of whether you can close or not. And then lastly is the win and the loss rate. When I'm talking about what enablement owns, talking about things like accreditation and certifications, um, biannual needs assessments, program surveys, user stats, whether it be the, the LMS, the learning management system, or the content management system on how that's helping in each stage of the funnel or where things are getting bogged down where we can help out. Then there's things like communications, right? But that's just for, for sales. If I go and I talk to an SE leader about that, they'll look at me like I have three heads. So when I'm talking to an SE leader or sales engineer or solution consultant leader, I'm talking about things like number of uh, demos per deal, the number of opportunities won and lost, the number of POCs, the length of those POCs, and the outcomes of it. Now, let's say I go talk to, S to customer support. The other two things will mean nothing to them. I'm talking to a CSM leader, I'm talking about adoption rates, customer churn uh, rates, customer lifetime value, CSAT, um, escalation resolution, net promoter score, renewal rates. So it really comes back to the one thing that we always teach salespeople. Know your audience, understand the value of your ICP, know what matters to them and what's important, and then learn how to speak to them in their language. Uh, one that I was looking up to was the another win rate, mm -hmm. the competitive win rate. Competitive win rate. You, you look at as well, particularly like, you know, we're losing a lot of market yes. to a certain competitor. The the question is why, right? And, and and I always go back to not just the what and the how, but it's more importantly, the why. Is it because our messaging and positioning is choppy or difficult to understand and it's disjointed? Is it because maybe marketing and product marketing are bringing things that they consider to be leads when really we're looking at it as nothing more than contacts or at most opportunities? Is it because our people, as I said earlier, can't message in position consistently? Is it because our combination between the, the BDR, the AE, and the SE are disjointed and disconnected and they're not working fluidly? Or Here's the big one that I think a lot of people don't look at. Is it because we have more managers than we have leaders? And so 
they're really kind of hurting and overseeing versus actually coaching. Do we have any secession plan in place? Right. We, and you know, most companies, they've got that, that, that hypo program for their high potential folks, but is there consistency in what the, what a high potential looks like? Is there a checklist that says you have to do this, this, and this before you're considered to be moved into that? Or, you know what, you know what, they're kind of killing it. We should promote them to manage. So then when we do that, because we do it all the time, right? The rock star salesperson gets promoted to sales leader. Do you realize you just created two problems? <laughs> One is I now have a vulnerable patch because I took the best seller possible out of that patch. And secondly, I've now put them in a position of leadership where the only thing they've ever done is overseen a patch. So that's what leads to my least favorite words, micromanagers. And I don't think they do it intentionally. They do it because that's all they know how to do. But I got to ask a question here because like, I hear this a lot. Almost every podcast I've been on talks about the, the guest talks about this concept of and there must be a problem. There is right. It's like <laughs> and it's in a systemic phrase. It goes back. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Frank Cespedes of Harvard's been teaching MBAs for thirty years. He talked about this problem thirty years ago being an Absolutely. issue, right? And so, you know, systemically there there is an issue here. But I, I, what's the alternative then? John Burroughs suggests that uh, B players make good managers or maybe better managers, arguably because. 100%. They will understand their process and what it took to be, you know, uh, consistent and be successful to the degree that they were, as opposed to this a player who's above performance. And now I think that's a little bit of an assumption. Can I add too. something onto that? Yeah, because Burroughs is my guy. Burroughs is yeah. literally family to me. Yeah. Um, and we have this conversation all the time. I think there's a component of why B players are so good, and I'll take it back to sports for a moment. Best players in the NBA in the history of time. Jordan, mm-hmm. Bird, Magic, Isaiah. Worst coaches in the history of the NBA. Jordan, Magic, Isaiah, and Bird. Because they believe that intrinsically what they do, others should be able to do too. B players are saying, I'm this good because I put the hours in. I put a thousand jumpers up in the gym every day. I'm going in and I'm working on making sure that you know my jab step is right. A players don't have to think about that. They just do it, which means it's difficult for them to teach something that they have no idea how they do it. They just do it. Interesting. Okay. Well, you know, I I, I want to keep jabbing at that because I I I faced that when I first became manager. I was a high performer, promoted to manager, uh, very young, and I learned hard that you're absolutely right. You cannot. You're not managing clones. Right. It's not people are all different and you have to you make that adjustment. So I think certain people can make that adjustment. If I'm an A player, if I'm a high performing rep and I have management leadership aspirations and I hear that message, I don't know that I'm going to like it. So I think that's like we have to balance that perception. I hear it a lot. And, you know, it's you're right. I think generally speaking, in a a lot of cases, that's probably what plays out where, Mm -hmm. you know, the top rep doesn't always make a great leader, but there's a countless examples of where top reps who were promoted have moved on and have been good leaders too. So it's, you know, probably some shades yeah. there. I agree. Let me say what I, I have learned over the years and what I've experienced. The best A players that I've seen in my career that have become rock star leaders have a single characteristic. 
they have a, and it's never 50-50, but close. They have a balance of high IQ and high EQ. Perfectly said. So when you can find that balance of how can I share my knowledge, but at the same time, learn from and have enough or, or little, little enough of ego to say, I can still learn from them. Right. That's the other characteristic. They are constantly perpetual learners. They don't feel like I've known it all just because I've been to President's Club 17 times and I've woo, 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 right? year is not going to get me there. It's not. It's like everything else. Mm -hmm. And here's a perfect example. We we're talking about AI. And now I'm going to go to an extreme. The old salty dogs that have been doing this forever are either A, looking at AI going, not even fooling with it. Or B, won't tell anyone, but I'm terrified of it because I don't know enough about it. But when you think about the younger generation today, they were born digitally native. This is all they've known. You give a, a baby an a iPad at 18 months old, come back, and, and they have- started a business. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they now bought so much Roblox, you won't know how to act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you can find that balance of EQ to say, hey- yeah. Teach me what you know, and I'll teach you what I know. And together, the tide will ri rise all boats. Let's do it together. That's great advice. That I, I, I can get behind that a thousand percent, right? It's because it's something that you can learn. It's a Absolutely. behavior that you can adjust to. And if the environment is fitting for it, then, you know, all power to you. For example, when you operate at large organizations, you made this example earlier around the sales enablement function. And if you're in a big company or in a small company, you know, I myself have worked for large organizations. And that was the first time I entered into management is I had a system around me. So mm -hmm. as a first time manager, I had a uh, associate director above me who was very, you know, very seasoned as a leader who was mentoring me, um, you know, these sorts of things, right? So you have a sales training, sales enablement team, you have human resource business partners. Whereas if you're a first-time leader in a small organization where you don't have much you know, support, you mentioned earlier how we're all- Lean on what you know. Right. Perfect. And that's not always a good thing. Right. I agree with that 100%. Well, let's switch gears. I, I, I know we're uh, running low on time and I want to get you back. So two final questions. Number one, can you talk to me about the relationship between a sales enablement person or team and product marketing? Oh, yeah. Um, it, it is symbiotic. It has to be connected at the hip because we can only be successful if our messaging and positioning is right. We can go buy the best tool stack on the planet, but if product marketing isn't tied in, and usually there's competitive and other pieces that fall along with them, right? But if the messaging is dead wrong, we die in the water. If the messaging is great, but we don't know how to get it, they don't know how to get it out in sales speak, it dies. If enablement can come back and say, you know what, we've been looking at our top 20 and our and our bottom 20 pieces of content in our content management system, we I'd recommend we pull that because it's confusing. There's too much old stuff out there. There's messaging and positioning we're not in line with anymore. Or there's new things that we need. Here's an example. We can, whenever I ran a boot camp back in, in, in sales enablement early days, I would always go to product marketing and go, I need product marketing and product management on one call together. 
Mm. Well, just once, give me a half an hour. Let me know where we are on messaging and positioning, marketing. I can tell you what's working and not working because I'm listening in on the calls and I'm sitting in with folks. I'm talking to product management because I'm talking to um, prospects and they're asking for the same things. How do we get that moved up on the release cycle? So now it becomes this full circle. Add in sales, add in learning and development, and now you've got the holy grail because everybody is on the same page. But here's what makes it work or not work. There has to be ownership and accountability. If I say to product marketing, hey, the messaging is off, slide seven in the uh, in the first call pitch is a little fuzzy and it creates confusion. If they don't trust me enough to yank it out and they keep trying to put it in there, one thing's going to happen. Either I'm going to come out with bad messaging or more than likely, I'm yanking it out. Now I got to go talk to the CMO around why we're changing slides. So it's better to work together and say, based upon, and I never say, here's what I think. I never say, here's what I feel. I always say, based upon actual conversations with people. What I'm hearing, what I'm seeing. Fill in the blank. What I'm seeing is this. What I'm hearing is this. And so it never becomes any animosity. It's not me versus you. It's we can't be successful without each other. Well, what I hear loud and clear in that is if I'm an early day sales enablement professional, I need to be on the front line. I need to be making sure that I'm scheduling myself in and I'm part of those discovery calls. I'm looking at the emails. I'm observing the real uh, realities of what's happening in the field, on the calls, et cetera. We can't do this you know, in a, in a vacuum, as they say. It's why we're called practitioners and not theorists, right? You've got to get out there and understand what's happening, working and not working based upon practical application, not what you think you see or what you're hearing. That means absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to go out and listen, be engrossed in, and even be a part of conversations so you can come back with your other partners and let them know what's working and not working. And then we can pivot. We can ideate. We can then go out and go back to what I said earlier. Then it's about communication, collaboration, and ultimately orchestration. Last question. One of the areas that is near and dear to your heart you shared with me is mapping the buyer's journey to our sales process. Now we can make a whole episode about this topic, oh, easily, right? But if you were working with the company, which you regularly do, I'm sure to do this exercise. Um, so we have an existing sales process and we have a low win rate. We have longer deal cycles than we'd ex we would like so forth. And we're attributing maybe some of our theory here is that it's has to do with not mapping it to the buyer's journey effectively. And we're kind of forcing people through our steps and not being customer focused, if you will. So what are the first couple steps? If you could, you don't have to walk us through the whole process, but where do you start in mapping that buyer's journey? I'll give you kind of five really quick ones. And, and now let's assume we've already sat down. The ICP is in place. We all are on the same page. The messaging's together. I, I think it's all about calibration and recalibration. First, it's sitting down with, with marketing and product marketing and sales and reassessing your current ideal customer profile, your ICP, and your buyer's profile. The last six months, the last year, life has shifted. Guess what? So has that. So now that means 
I may have to make some shifts. Let me step all the way back. Sorry, I left something out. It starts with saying, no longer is it good enough to try and shoehorn the prospect into our sales process, our sales stages, our sales methodology, our selling motion. We have to go back to them and understand not just what they buy, why they buy, when they buy, who they buy, and how they buy. That now is that point I was just talking about, about reassessing your current ICP and your buyer profile. The next is then understanding and, and having them articulate and communicate your, their buyer's journey. It's funny, there's a lot of times you'll ask that question, they don't even have it mapped out. Now is an opportunity to sit down and say, based upon, and now you're becoming a true consultant. Well, even if you're in-house, you get a chance to say, people that look just like you, here's what we've been able to do and how we've mapped things out. The next piece is, as we were just talking about, bringing HR, marketing, sales enablement, and sales together to kind of reassess the IEP, the ideal employee profile, to make sure that where we are in the maturation cycle and growth of the company, we've got the right kind of sellers. Have we moved from a small ticket sell to a mid-market or have we now moved to a big ticket and requires more of a relationship manager versus just a true hunter, if you will? The next is realigning all of the sales methodology, stages, selling motions, assets, and collateral for that new change and shift in the buyer's journey of your ICP. And then the last piece is iterate, iterate, iterate. Go back and recalibrate with marketing, sales, product marketing, product management, sales, et cetera, to make sure that not just everybody heard it, but everybody gets it and we're all rowing in the same direction. That's the role of enabling. So the, that last step, indicates that this is not a one-time exercise. You don't map the buyer's journey in 2022 and don't look at it again for five years. It's an ongoing, it's a flywheel. You're always- It's a breathing entity, mm. right? Just like relation, just like business changes. What happens? Competitive landscape shifts. Mergers and acquisitions right. happen. Companies go out, out of business. They shift where their focus is. Buyer behavior. People leave jobs all the time. Layoffs, restructures and reorgs happen. Hmm. Things like that happen. It necessitates that you go back and reassess and recalibrate on the buyer's journey. Because everybody wants to talk about sales stages, sales process, sales methodology, selling motions. Without a buyer, none of that matters to do with the buyer in mind. This has been tremendous. Thank you so much, Roderick. Uh, again, for those that are tuning in, please, please make sure you cop Roderick's book, The Sales Enablement 3.0, uh, available on Amazon. My copy is on its way. And this has been an honor. Where can people go to, to, to find you and connect with you if they want to learn more? Thanks for that opportunity. I always say, if you can't find me on social media, you're not really trying. Right. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn at roderickjefferson.com. You can find me on uh, Insta at Roderick underscore, underscore, I'm sorry, Roderick underscore J underscore associates. You can find me on YouTube at Roderick Jefferson Associates. And to your point, you can find my book on Amazon or wherever you buy books, eBooks and audiobooks. You've been listening to the Sales Consultant Podcast. If you enjoyed the interview and would like to support the show, please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or on Spotify. Please also consider following our LinkedIn page. 
If you're an industry expert or if you know an industry expert that should be on the show, message us on LinkedIn at the Sales Consultant Podcast.